Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode, what, 74? We're on 74 now. I can't believe it. Um, Incredible. And this, and this one's all about standards, uh, CSTA standards specifically, and how to bring them to life in the classroom uh, with your students. So my name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. <laughs> and my name's Kelly Schuster-Perez, and I am a teacher who codes. And Kelly, I have to apologize to you for a little bit of the uh, scramble to get the live stream going today. That was entirely my fault and totally avoidable. Uh, no excuse. It just was not my best day. <laughs> it was funny because I was sitting there. We had planned to record and then nothing happened. I didn't see a streamer. I'm like, ah, you know, we're not recording. I'm OK. I'm sitting out by the pool. And then I see your email blog post. I'm like, we're recording at 1.30. It's 1.45. What is going on? Well, you did <laughs> you did this just to see what my my abilities are for teaching for standards and and you're you're trying to stump me, aren't you? No, I just needed a <laughs> I needed a fail of the week, and this uh, <laughs> this works really well. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, hilarious. so so what's going on in the world right now, Kelly? We're officially back to work this week. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. And you have been working away on apps and ebooks and textbooks and making sure that everything's ready to go. Um, yeah. I think we are successful. I've tested it out with a lot of people. I've uh, I've got a couple of my last books all done and a couple other vendors straggling in, but we gave that presentation to you and to the other ed tech specialists. So I'm like, check. That's my win, by the way. Check. <laughs> <laughs> it's like finished. It's behind you. <laughs> now on to the next presentation that I have to do on Tuesday, which I just started. Today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that I'm in the same boat. I'm I think I'm presenting on smart boards or something. So I have to go um, pull that together too. Oh, well, and I'm teaching I'm I'm presenting on um, high, um, high expectations in the in the classroom. Nice. Well, yeah, I, I so. think that'll go really well, given the work that you did last year on that and really trying to change the way that you set expectations for students and then held them to it. And I think that's a really, it's a really good thing and really powerful thing for students when they know what to expect or what to expect of themselves. Absolutely. With those sixth graders, too, that I can't code, I can't do it. So we're going to keep testing and using them as guinea pigs and see how they go. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, I have a really good feeling about <laughs> about this crop of sixth graders coming in. Um, you think back to when we started teaching this. Um, this is our fourth year together now. But when we started this four years ago, um, students didn't have all of the computer science education that they have now at our school. They're four years further along in the journey. So they started this group of sixth graders. They were, what, second graders that first year that we started? And they were getting all that computer science background and education. And now I can't wait to see what they're going to do as sixth graders. Absolutely. And I keep thinking this is my last chance to to mess up before my son becomes a sixth grader next year. Can you believe that? My son, sixth grader. <laughs> it's <No>. uh, <laughs> it's kind of wild, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll, we'll find a way to make it work. It'll just be <laughs> awkward for most of it. <laughs> I'm going to leave. Can you reprimand him? I'm leaving. <laughs> Did you yeah, have any... <laughs> hey, look, Daniel Chen's in the chat with us too. Hi, Hi Daniel. Daniel. It's been so long. Oh, oh man. I can't, I can't wait to catch up with him and see what he's been up to um, and how he's gearing up for the new uh, semester with all of his work in, in bioinformatics and data science and everything that we'll have to have him come on the show and just give us an update. Absolutely. Especially. Ooh, you need to, I don't, I need to ask him. I'm going to ask him if he follows this one girl on LinkedIn. She's amazing. Um, see, now that we have him, we're just going to talk to Chen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keep going with the show while I look up her name. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take me a while. She posts constantly on data science. She's amazing. She's uh, learning, taking her journey in machine learning and data science. And she she's kind of helping me on the AWS journey because she explains things. She posted um, a couple of really cool math um, AI stuff the other day. And then she posted this really interesting tidbit about Pringles and how they used AI to genetic, not genetically to um, design the way that the Pringles would fit on top of each other. So I'll find the name and we'll post it in a second. 
So not <laughs> not to nerd out too much about crisps and the fact that they're not actually made out of potatoes. I think they're made out of like turnip and everything. Like it's crazy. Uh, it's all just starch. Uh, but I used to work at the company that makes Pringles and they did have to mathematically model the shape of the Pringles. They stack correctly so that they like as they're running them at high speed through their manufacturing lines to cook them and, and pack them and everything that they don't fly off. And it reminds me uh, one of the applications of modeling and simulation that we used at Procter & Gamble was ma- was modeling and simulating assembly lines and manufacturing lines to be able to see how things would behave at high speeds. And it's kind of a really cool thing that somewhere out there in the cloud is a, a model or a simulation that's running Pringles at hundreds of miles an hour through their, their system to see how they fly off the uh, manufacturing line when they get too fast. That is very nerdy. <laughs> you know, you got to enjoy the little things. <laughs> So, so let's see here. We, um, let's, let's start off where we always do. I mean, we're already kind of in the middle of the conversation, but let's go through (laughs) wins of the week and fails of the week. I know my fail of the week already. I, my win was getting the class link presentation done, train the trainers done. Um, we had, I think like 90 something apps that needed to go on this platform. I'm a successful at now writing queries, um, doing um, SFTP file transfers. Um, I sat through a conversation about matching and pre-processors and doing, making data from one roster to go to another place. And I was like, Ooh, I know what a pre-processor is. I I know this. (laughs) So I, I have definitely become the, um, more back-end informational person this year than I ever thought I would in my entire lifetime. So it was pretty cool. That's a huge win for me. So nice. I think we'll have to get the um, we'll have to get you using their API also. <laughs> Maybe some web hooks. Something will happen when you know certain events happen in the system. That could be fun. Yeah, we only have LTI, um, which is not API, right? I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to <laughs> dig into that. I don't know what they mean by LTI. So. <laughs> Uh, all here, right wait 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 can you see that yeah the it's the pringle. A, has a, yep it has that, a, that saddle shape is uh what is it like hype uh, i for, i saw your post about it, it, was like it something is like hyper... the hyperbolic hyperbolic paraboloid and the person to follow is alex wang she's nice. a data science data analytics person she's she does nice. a really cool post Okay, sorry, your win of the week. Very cool. So my win of the week um, has to be um, getting my blog post up finally about the second part of the hand sanitizer dispenser. It's been months, putting on my hard drive, partially finished. (laughs) Well, not quite a year, but close enough. Um, And I just got it posted there, and it has all of the information about how it's automated through Home Assistant. So um, now when someone uses the hand sanitizer dispenser in our classroom, There's a lamp that flashes in different colors and Alexa will select one of 20 or 30 random phrases or quips and uh, speaks it out when the students sanitize their hands. So I'm pleased to say that we had 2,838 hand sanitizer dispenses that were tracked last last year on the dispenser. It was pretty cool to see how well it worked. That's very cool. Hopefully we'll have the same amount, if not more, this year. So keep those hands clean and everything yeah. so cool yeah i mean i hope so you know i hope i hope we'll get um you know students involved in it more and i have some ideas for how we can make it even more um interesting and always kind of keep them on their toes or excited about something uh we have some new equipment coming to the classroom to make it a little bit more connected and a little bit more fun so more to more to come on that one absolutely and i have to get my aws uh working and doing some of that stuff keyboard we're going to be yep. doing all kinds of AI things, I think, this year. It's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Uh, well, fails of the week, any to, any to share? <sighs> I, there's so many. I, just little things, just getting through class length stuff. But yeah, nothing. Nothing we're sharing, but it's all a learning. It's all learning curve. So I'm good with that. I'm just going to leave it like that and <laughs> 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 keep going. <laughs> and you? 
Well, other than this podcast and getting the live stream set up uh, on time. Uh, honestly, there's been just a, a series of fails this week. I had the sprinkler guys coming to fix uh, the sprinklers in our um, in our yard. And the sprinkler guy came out. And as I was in the middle of a call the other day with you, Kelly, you were presenting. And I think I was mid-sentence. Uh, he chopped through the cable line to the house and cut off the signal. So I was out in the middle of a thunderstorm trying to repair this line, at least temporarily, so that uh, our internet provider could come fix it later. But it was uh, it was definitely a bit of a fail, and I was just trying not to get electrocuted by a lightning strike. So uh, I think it was... It all turned out well, but it definitely felt like it was one thing after another this week of of fails that had to be overcome. That's funny because um, our boss says, Sean's gone. I was like, yeah, he says he doesn't have to listen to this part because I do Classlink and he does iPads. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely both both accountable (laughs) regardless of what we'd like to say. That's funny. All right. So CSTA standards, let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. So I, this is something that I wanted to bring into my, my teaching this year to make sure that I am um, really elevating the level and the standard and the rigor that I'm teaching to, to make sure that I'm being comprehensive and thorough. So you mentioned this to me, or you had me look into this is the CSTA, the computer science teachers association. They have a whole set of standards by different grade levels and by concept areas. So you can see this on csteachers.org. They have a standard section and you can filter it to the different levels. So I focused it just on level two, which is ages 11 to 14, grades six through eight. And there are 23 different standard areas here. So if you haven't seen these before, let me see if I can share my screen and, and bring these up because this would be kind of a cool thing to, for everyone to be able to, to look at. Um, I really like how they're filtered. It, it's really cool because they do it by different age levels and everything. And I think even if you're looking to learn for yourself or you're teaching at like maybe in a university setting, grad school, professional setting, these standards can be really helpful because it will give you um, you know, something to to look at, like a framework in which to use for this. So let me see if I can get my, my tab sharing here. While you're doing that, I'll... Um... Just that's a different view. Do you have the uh, progression one? You don't have the progression one. That one's really nice. Um, So while you're doing that, just a side note at Pinecrest, we don't have to follow the Florida state standards. Um, We can, in theory, pick and choose. We do tend to bring in a lot of the CSTA. It's computer science technology standards. So why wouldn't you? They're really thorough. They did a revamp and revise of them in 2017. And the, the bands that Sean was talking about, this is that progression of a K-12 school system um, curriculum. So If you are getting a student that um, comes into your school in sixth grade and hasn't had curriculum science in the previous years, you may still need to back up and look at level one band to make sure that your students can progress in that level. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool because it's just a it's just a drop down. Right. So you can look at any of these levels and see like, you know, so levels one is 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 separated into two sections, you know, K through two ages five through eight and then three through five ages eight to eleven. But then I think also the three A, three B is really cool, too, because, again, it kind of gets into that. What do we have in terms of standards for? Um, high school level students, which could work really well also for inexperienced people in the workforce or in university settings as well. I think you're kind of in that that crossover gray area between that um, when you get to those levels. Cool. Um, so I looked through here and here's here's what I'd like to do, because I as I'm looking through this, I've been saying, yeah, this is something that's familiar. Like, for example, um, you know, representing data using multiple encoding schemes. And the example that they give here is representing colors using RGB values or hex codes, you know, which we use. We can show them both ways to represent the same color. Maybe we don't do binary, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But these are all encoded in different ways. So we've talked about that in the classroom, but I never explicitly looked at these standards and said, okay, I'm going to tie 
this thing that I'm teaching back to the standard for the student or make that connection explicit and deliberate. It's always been kind of implicit or intuitive instead. Um, so what I, what I wanted to do is look at this with you and say, okay, let's pick out four or five of these standards that would be good to share or good to include in the in my teaching this year, not necessarily at a curriculum level and at a design level, but more at a lesson planning. How do I make sure that I'm bringing these to life in interesting ways and useful ways for students so that they can um, they can you know be able to point to it later and say, yes, I've met that standard. Right. Or we can look at it and say, yes, they've met that standard. OK, so I'm going to do my my teacher thing. Um, I'm just backing up for a second, get my head processing around this and and explain how I see it. I think a lot of the times when we go into teaching, for example, say we're doing a microbit project and in our microbit project, our kids have to design a game that uses um couple different sensors or has some sort of visual and it has to be unique. I, I, I did this one pro project arcade. Um, uh, what's his name? Arcade kind of idea where the lower school came in and they played. There are a lot of standards. Oh, sorry. One second. I'll be right back. Right back. <laughs> this is what he does to me all the time in the middle of teaching as well. <laughs> Sorry, hold on one second, Sarah. Is he there? This is. <laughs> Sorry, just, there's someone at the front door. I, <laughs> I can't I just do anything told the, right I just told the listeners, this is what he does in the middle of my teaching. Just one second. I'm going to interrupt. <laughs> now he loses my train of thought, and then it takes me like 20 minutes to get back on. <laughs> <laughs> I ha have every confidence that you'll be able to get back into the swing. Okay. Thing. So anyways, during this project with the microbits, we probably cover, you know, 10 or 15 of those standards from CSTA. I may not be assessing all of those standards at that moment in time. In fact, assessing probably more than three or four standards is, is like way too much. So when you start thinking about which projects you're going to do or which standard you're going to do, you want to think about one that maybe isn't done throughout sixth, seventh and eighth. Cause I'm assuming we're talking about your eighth grade class, right? right? So think of something that, because these standards are for by the end of eighth grade, the student will be able to do this. So if they've done a lot of it in sixth grade, or if they've done a lot of it in seventh grade, what haven't they done in eighth grade and how can you push that? Yeah. Daniel Chen <laughs> says the joys of working from home. Right? <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. <laughs> um, so I think I, I, I have questions about this because this is the part that I want to make sure that I'm thinking about and, and that I have the right framework for this because you mentioned assessment, right? Which kind of comes at the end of the, the loop. It's not like a linear thing, but it's the end of the loop before you go back into the next round. Dep of Depends. Right. I mean, could be I, during could be during the loop. It doesn't have to necessarily be at the end of the loop, right? Well, we can assess formatively, and still that standard can be. For example, you might have um, identifying fixed problems. I don't know. I just pulled this one. Systematically identifying fixed problems with computing devices and their components. You're working with Circuit Playground. For me, you know, that love-hate relationship circuit playground, the kids need to, to put in the firmware, they need a check for everything to light up, they need to see if the code that's from the package works. If they can do that before your project, your project's not even about getting the, the circuit playground working, but that standard could be assessed very early on in the project. Right. Right. So that, just that troubleshooting cycle step is something that could be assessed as part of the project. Mm -hmm. But it but doesn't I, have to be a grade for the end of the project. It right, won't be. Right. Oh, yeah. Check. Well, so then what, let me take a step back then. So so do the students get to see the standards, I guess, is the first thing. Is it something that that you show them explicitly? Here's the standards we're trying to teach to. Is it something that you kind of keep a little bit behind the scenes and then you can show them later? Like, is there is there a best approach for how you incorporate these standards for the students to be able to see them? Yeah. In theory, each time you have a lesson, you have objectives 
And in theory, your objectives of what you want the student to accomplish should be shown prior to the lesson. You know, what is the big idea? I'm going to give you these three different types of circuit boards. And I want you to be able to troubleshoot them. So that is our goal for th for this class today. You do it, you whatever, whatever. Did they do it? Yep. Check the standard. But it doesn't it doesn't necessarily because I think nothing would kill joy that, more <laughs> than saying today's goal is to address 2-DA-09 <laughs> from the CSTA standards, right? Like that, would, that just seems like it would be like, wow, thanks for that, Mr. Tiber. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So our objective today is to see if you can get these boards to work, which is something right. you say all the time. You throw a bunch of boards to them and you say, hey, kids, get it to work. So that is your verbiage that you use. That is your ultimate goal. That is your learning objective. And by the end of the class, either they all got it to work or they're all crying in the corner. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so so I think what you're saying is just the that in my mind and as mm -hmm. I'm planning and designing, I'm mapping the learning objective to the standard, but I'm not necessarily showing the student the standard itself. I mean, they could see if they want to, or you could have a link or whatever, but, yeah. but maybe that's a little too, uh, it's a <laughs> too little it, direct. Yeah. yeah. These are written for us. Seek and incorporate feedback from team members and users to refine a solution that meets user needs. This is, this is something for publication. So, you know, I would never give this to a student and say, here's what, what we're covering. You need to tell me if you've done that. But maybe in the rubrics, I could put on, I have usually if I have a one-line rubric and I have below, below expectations and above expectations, and my meet expectations, I might say something like, worked as a team, um, went through some iterations to find feedback on how to improve the program or to make it more concise or to make it more readable and has done that with two or three people. So right. I've written that standard in their vocabulary so that I can clearly assess that. So we, so we start with establishing learning objectives tied to standards. Mm -hmm. We assess either throughout or at the end uh, against how well they're meeting those standards, right? And then what happens in the middle? Like kind of what's the glue that connects these together in your mind? Is it the is it teacher led? Is it student led? Is it project work? Is it all of the above? Like how do we get them from that we set out the learning objective to now we can show that they've met the standard? What is there a, a best way to do that? Are there multiple ways? Is it that's just teaching? It's just teaching this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so my end goal is the standard. It's not really my start goal. My end goal, my end goal is where I want them to be. So let's let's take a huge one. Let's say document programs in order to make them easier to follow, test, and debug. Um, that one's huge. So let me, see. Let, me let me bring that one up because that one uh, like, that is a huge one. Document programs. We... There we go. Documentation. Okay. Yeah. So let's think of this as um, let's think of this as the card game. I think you went and did the classes activity. We took a seventh grade card game where they just wrote however they could get the card game working. And then you took and you looked at classes, correct? Right. So let's assume this this lesson wasn't written yet. First, you want to make sure that they can document their programs they can follow it, they can test it, and they can debug it. That's your end goal. What do they need to do from that end goal in order to write do that project? Right. So you're going to work backwards from that end goal. So debug, all right, so we're going to put that in the beginning. What does it mean to debug? How do we find coding errors? Now, again, I might have covered that in sixth and seventh grade, which I do, and I know you continue to cover in eighth grade. So you can say, remember... In sixth grade, when we were looking for this type of error or that type of error, and it might just be a, can you recall this? Like a quick little five minutes of a lesson doesn't have to be taught if it was already taught previously. Does that make sense? Right. So like, so you're connecting it and you're showing mm -hmm. that like the building blocks, right. Or mm -hmm. building upon the foundation that they already have. Um, and maybe some of that is enhancement. So like the sixth grade goal might be 
they have comments in their code, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're explaining it with comments. But then seventh grade, we might in introduce flowcharts and diagramming, or you know, some sort of like UI sketch or something. And then by eighth grade, maybe they're you know writing their own formal doc strings or something like that. Could be a, a build step that they do that could turn into their own documentation for a module or for a program that they're writing. Correct. And I actually wrote a, gr a pretty good blog. I thought it was one of my better blogs on building a, a rubric. So this stuff will come into mind. But whenever I look at a standard, a standard that I really want to teach, I list out everything what that's within that standard. And that list, especially if it's like, we, I don't use these standards as much. I've looked at them a couple times, but they're intense for our nine weeks purposes. That's why we look at only a few. But I would list out everything within that standard of what the kids would have to do and tease out the important parts that I think I need to explicitly teach at that moment. Right? So our kids know loops in, in lower school. They know conditional statements-ish. They know, you know, how to make a, a fuzzy thing go through a, um, what's it called? You know, that fuzzy thing that they play on on the iPad. <laughs> They know like codable. To, yeah, codable, <laughs> that fuzzy thing. They know how to do that stuff. So I can start crossing out the stuff that I know that they have been taught, explicitly taught, and focus on the things that they have not been explicitly taught. And I might have to do two or three projects in order to make sure that the documenting programs has been done, right? Or maybe we don't even get to that completely until the ninth grade year when they go into AP. Right. So right. you, that's how I work back from, from standards. Gotcha. Okay. So I think that that helps me a lot because, you know, the, the important thing here in my mind is like making it intentional, right? Making it something that doesn't just happen uh, serendipitously, but something that is uh, intentional practice, intentional part of your teaching. And what I like about the way that you've uh, organized this is that it starts with objectives, it has specific projects, activities, assessments, um, practices, homework, whatever it is that what helps to build each of those um, against each of those objectives. But then the role of assessment is to evaluate how well did we meet that standard? How well was that objective achieved? And how do we measure that? Right. And I think that's really critical here because, you know, from reading through the standards, the the majority of these, especially all the ones that are algorithms and programmings, seem like they're pretty straightforward to implement, right? Like, here's what we would do. Here's some exercises. Here are some things that would be, um, you know, a great way to articulate that um, that skill or that standard when students meet it. But then there's other things in here like, you know, digital citizenship or impacts of computing where the outcomes maybe are less tangible in terms of, you know, it's not show me a loop. It's describe how, um, you know, how to protect yourself online. Right. Mm -hmm. I, there's some of these that are, are, equally important, but maybe harder to measure. So it's like discuss issues of bias and accessibility in the design of access, uh, existing technologies, this IC21, right? So these things are, there. there's less specific concrete examples that you can give to say, yes, this is definitely a loop, or yes, this is data analytics, right? Like uh, Daniel uh, just showed here that the Standard for data analysis, collect data using computational tools and transform the data to make it more useful and reliable. That can be a very complex standard, but it also has a very specific outcome. There's ways to measure that. There's ways to assess, did they do it? Did they not? Um, but it feels like some of these other areas may, might be a little bit harder to assess using like a binary measure. It'd have to be more qualitative or subjective in terms of the the way to measure those or assess those. Yes. Um, so there's a really good, I'm trying to find it. There are power verbs, right? So if we're, if we're talking on about the things that are subjective, right? It's not quantifiable. Y you can't say, yes, they got five uh, circuit, playground boards, Adafruit boards working. 
but it's more of a, a feeling. You can always use some sort of power word like analyze or explain, and you can check understanding, or you can do some sort of visual thinking activity where you they have to express their thinking so that you can measure their thinking based on how they've come up with an answer or how they've explained their answer. For example, what was that one website? Was it from Stanford where you have two scenarios? It was MIT, not Stanford, MIT. And you had two scenarios. You either hit the pack of dogs or the single old person. And they were trying to get an understanding of bias for self-driving cars. It was this little, it was a, I'll f- try to find it later. It's kind of like the, the trolley car problem, right? Where you have to choose which track do you kill one person or like, yeah, yeah. You, you know, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and so they did this thing and they were trying to see, they would, after the, after the test, they would say, where, what gender are you? How old are you? Where do you live? Et cetera, et cetera. But you, you can have this conversation. Yes, it's a, a subjective kind of um, topic where you, you talk about bias and why this is important and how you train a model, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have this conversation with kids where they can use the terminology that and understand and explain their understandings in a visual way or, you know, I say visual, but out loud, auditory way then then you can assess that. You can say, yes, they are understanding that this is checking for bias. This is checking that we don't have one gender or one age age group killed over, you know, dogs or cats or et cetera. So you just have to look at your power words and how you twist that. Okay. I accidentally closed the window. I was going to actually go in there and, and look at this a little, <laughs> in a little bit more detailed level. I think one of the one of the things that seems really fascinating about this is that this is the realm in which we get into more um, cross-disciplinary collaboration as well. So this seems like it'd be a great conversation to have with like your English department or literature teachers or something like that, where you can find examples to connect the uh, the work that they're doing in that area back to computer science and have these conversations about, you know, what's the right approach here? Like, how do we, how do we um, assess, analyze, discuss, you know, what's the, the level of depth that we can get into when it comes to understanding these issues that are part of the computational realm, whether it's inclusivity and culture or digital citizenship or any of these other areas that those seem like those are areas that are ripe for collaboration with other departments, especially ones that maybe haven't traditionally connected with computer science. Absolutely. And I mean, just the idea of using flow charts and pseudocode, I I was doing that, trying to write it with uh, Jessica on the constitution, just trying to write the, the flow chart or the pseudocode pseudocode on how the bill of rights (laughs) And coding the Constitution, she was like, "Well, it can mean this, and it can go to this." And I was like, "Ah, yeah." I mean, you have to really know your Bill of Rights in order to build that flowchart. And that's what I was explaining to her. Like when we talk about coding the Constitution, she was caught up in the fact that, "Oh, we're going to have to code in Python." I was like, "If you can get the kids to write a flowchart on what that Bill of Rights does, that's." half the problem done right there. You know, that's easy. If this, then that, you know, let's, let's do it. So yeah, you were right. Like these standards cross disciplinary and a lot of the things that we do in code are going to help with science and math and writing and et cetera. So it's kind of nice. So I think what this is leading me to, um, because it's it's definitely helpful to talk about the bigger picture and how these connect. But I think what's also helpful is to talk about what's next. Like, what do you do next with this information? What are your specific to-do list items? And so what I'm thinking is that when I get into our classroom on Monday and I have a few minutes, I'm going to pull aside one of the whiteboard tables and start to sketch this out, start to map it almost like a mind map or um, an entity diagram to show how these are going to connect together and connect it back to each of the lesson modules that I have planned for my students this year. And I think that that's where I'm going to start with this and start making choices 
about which standards I'm going to emphasize and really focus on trying to implement well and how much time I want to spend against each one. And maybe the ones that I'm not going to focus as much attention on because it doesn't fit as well with the curriculum or might be a little awkward to make it connect. Yeah. So there's a really cool mapping, curriculum mapping activity, what they do with standards. Um, and I, I did it. I used to be the head of, uh, not head, the person in charge of looking at my ATL approaches to learning and design thinking. So we did this a lot, but if you take this beautiful document and you put it out on, you know, your left side of your standards and we have sixth grade, seventh grade and eighth grade, let's just forget that kids go to high school and forget that kids are in the lower school and we map out what standard is met by the end of year three, all of these standards in theory can be covered. So that's sometimes something that's overwhelming for people when they, you know, they do what you do and they're, they're not so open to just going, Oh, well, just going to forget about that. Cause people think that, Oh, I got to cover everything. I got to cover everything. No, by the end of year eight, you get them all done. So it's kind of nice to see this, you know, check the box kind of matrix completed. And you know, you're building a, a solid curriculum when you at least have touched, explicitly touched and talked about each one of those standards within the three-year program. And I think when I think about the three years that that we have set up right now, I think we're really close. I think we've gotten it to the point where whether we've explicitly connected it or not, we've gotten it to the point where we could point to a lesson that each of our eighth grade students have experienced throughout the course of their their time in middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel had a question I wanted to address also, and I've got I've got an answer for this, and I think Kelly, you might have one too. His question is: Have you had projects where students had to acknowledge and work around privacy and ethical considerations? Mm. And I know we talked a little bit about it with machine learning. Um, and we did do, I, I did talk a lot about um, like the biasness and we did do an activity in English talking about this ethical side um, of AI, machine learning, this dystopia, utopia. Um, it's like a 40 page, <laughs> it was a 40 page lesson plan that I gave my English teacher. So we did that. I haven't talked so much about privacy in depth when it comes to, you know, code and everything, I know you have, I mean, my basic digital citizenship side, but that's it. A lot of the stuff that I've done in this area has been the conversations, right? So they ask Mm -hmm. questions about like, how much does Alexa really know about what you're saying? How much does it listen to you? All of those things. And so we've talked a lot um, because this is an area that I know reasonably well, all about ad technologies and how odds are created and behavior analytics and things like that that predict what people want to buy and why they want to buy it or how they're going to behave in the future. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty scary area of uh, computing, but I, the project that I think is probably the most effective for students and that, cause they always keep coming back to me and they say, Oh, I remember when we did this um, is the API work that we did with Twilio in seventh grade. So this is one where it's like a, a, Ju- a Python, like a Jupyter notebook. I think I do it in Colab, but it's a Jupyter notebook that I share with everyone that has access to an API through Twilio to be able to send text messages. And the point of the exercise is to learn about how to use web APIs to be able to accomplish different things, right? So you can use Twilio to make phone calls, to receive phone calls, to send and receive text messages, et cetera. So this exercise is specifically around being able to send text messages. I limit the API so it owns text messages to my phone so that they can use it to send to anybody they want. But the, the thing that invariably happens with this is that Everyone has like the first five minutes where they're sending a text message. They're like, oh, I'm sending a text message to Mr. Tiber. And I have to talk to them about like, yes, remember, this is still school and it still has to be school appropriate. And so that's cute. And they're having fun with it. And I get a bunch of silly text messages. And then about five minutes in, one of the students has the realization that they can put the text message command in a for loop. And they're like, oh, look, I just sent Mr. Tiber 10 text messages. And then they just start adding zeros after that. And suddenly my phone just starts getting shut down almost by incoming text message notifications just over and over and over again. And so then we go into that conversation about how with 
not that much knowledge of coding and how to use Python. They have these really powerful tools at their disposal that could be used in an unethical way, right? To violate someone's you know, device or shut down their device and violate their right to access the device that they've paid for. So this idea in this conversation that we've had has ter- turned out to be pretty good, like just because they realize they see it for themselves because they were the ones who did it. They shut down their teacher's phone. And I know that this happens and I end up blocking the number. And after a few minutes, it slows down. But they just they just realize they're like, wait a minute, I can I can shut down anybody's phone if I wanted to. And so then we talk about that whole idea of ethical behaviors in computing and how just because you have this knowledge doesn't mean that you should be able to use it for any purpose you want. You still have to apply good ethics and morals to it. Yeah. And I, I think we, we do have a lot of conversations about it besides that activity. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think of ways we explicitly teach it, but we do talk a lot about after the fact, you know, um, I noticed you didn't do all of your pie bites and you just copied it. Like, that's great. I understand you copy that. What's the ethical, what's the ethical thing behind that? And you copy this code from GitHub. How's that affect you? Not only did you steal someone's code and did not give them credit, how does that affect you in the long term. And that, that kind of goes on the side of my presentation on Tuesday to, to uh, the teachers is that high expectations. I have these expectations for you to achieve something. I'm hoping that you're going to do it ethically and morally right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> be a good person. And, and especially at the age levels that we're talking about, they do make these mistakes, right? They yeah. do, whether it's intentional or unintentional, they they make me these mistakes. And the important thing is that they can learn from it, right? That they can see that that it's possible. That's why I set up the exercise the way that I do. I know that someone's going to swamp my phone with text messages. It happens every time I teach that lesson. <laughs> but but at the at the end of it, nobody got hurt. You know, I'm able to shut it down and it's done in a controlled, safe environment. So the more of those opportunities that we can create, the better. And I think there's also something that's kind of attractive to students about learning about these fringe areas, too. And it may make the lessons better if they realize that, like, some of the stuff that they're doing is a choice to do it the right way and to be ethical about the way that they do it. Absolutely. Cool. So, so what are you excited about most of? Which one are you excited the about the one that, on your, on the one that I love the most. Let me, let me see here. I think, I mean, every, like, it's great because everything that's in the algorithms and programming is like, yeah, that that's great stuff. Like I love, you know, that's all part of what we teach. Like that's really well baked into our, our, um, our curriculum. But I think the stuff that I really want to um, do more, especially with the eighth graders is to look at um the networking stuff. So look at the the part that's all about um, what was it? It was uh, model how information is broken down into smaller pieces, transmitted as packets through multiple devices over networks and the internet and reassembled at the destination. That's something that personally I like a lot um, because we have this idea that like once I'm connected to Wi-Fi, it's like, it's just magic, right? Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> that I, if I can connect to the Wi-Fi in my house, like the internet just is there. And what we don't realize is that whole architecture to connect computers together and to have the networking and to make it reliable and robust and all those things. And I don't intend to go into a lot of detail with that, but having a basic understanding of being able to connect other servers, this idea of IP addresses and routing and domain names and all these things with a basic understanding for that, it opens up the world to you in a lot of other ways for things like making web requests or setting up your own web server or any of those things. So now you can tell people like, Hey grandma, come see my website. Here's the address for it. And you know that it's set up on a computer somewhere with this, you know, URL and how they get to that is kind of a cool way of, of connecting dots together. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I was looking like I spend all of sixth grade in algorithms and programming standards. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pretty much <laughs> that's where I live. Um, and I, I do like the, we do a little bit of impacts of coding. We do do one week of machine learning in our nine weeks. We try to squeeze that in last year was, we didn't do so hot cause it was just 
get through the year kind of thing. But in the past, we did it. And the funny thing is, is CSTA also has standards for professional development for teachers. And if you have a look at that is where you should be on the timeline uh, or timeline on the rubric of, of levels. And one of the things is um, knowledge and skills as a teacher. When I used to teach science, everyone was like, you're clearly knowledgeable in design thinking. You're clearly knowledgeable. When I get to the CSTA, I'm like, I'm down here at the end. And so I'm looking at the networks and the internet and it's all these stuff that I'm still learning. It's, it's hard to believe that I'm teaching computer science and, you know, I'm just learning about, um, what is it? Files and, and systems and all the stuff that I've been doing with JetBrains and dash dash R versus dash, dash, you know, dash RX and all that stuff for encoding of files, things that you just take for granted and you don't really know what's happening. So mindful of that too, when you're looking at your CSTA standards, when you're developing yourself and setting the standards for your growth professionally. So that's yeah, what and I like the the fact that between you and I, we both see different areas that we want to develop, and that's where we can help each other out, also, right? So, yep. this this call has been really helpful for me to be able to look at well, how do we actually use these standards, and not to make assumptions about the mm-hmm. way I think it should be done, but to ask the questions and to be able to think about different ways that these can be used, and that's where the the value of having a colleague or someone in your PLN who's more advanced in an area that you're not is really helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm writing my files and writing and jet brains or reading them. So you'll be helping me when I get back to work. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. So before we wrap up, I know we only have a couple minutes left. I wanted to just cover off on a few um, just announcements and things that are going on. So we launched our um, email newsletter a couple of weeks ago using Substack. And you know, I don't know if this is the final <laughs> the final iteration of our email newsletter, but I'm really liking the ability to write a little bit longer form con- content to share that with everyone. And you can get that either through our Twitter, it gets posted there, or through um, our subscription. It's teachingpythonpodcast.substack.com. So you can go on that and uh, and sign up for our email newsletters and see the previous posts. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I also want to encourage people to share that with their friends and colleagues. Um, it's a great way to get more casual conversations going, highlights of what's going on with us, um, whether it's new blog posts or new episodes, new recordings, things like that that we have out there. Um, and then also the, the other thing I want to mention too was that... Um, this week, I think it was uh, Saturday, uh, the state of Florida where Kelly and I live had the highest uh, number of new COVID cases since July of last year. So things have really picked up here in terms of, of COVID. So right now, we don't know what our year is going to look like or how this wave of new cases is going to affect our teaching. But I did want to highlight for everyone that there's a couple of great episodes, 43 and 44, in the back catalog from our friends over at Real Python, it's uh, David Amos and Christopher Bailey, and it's all about written and video content that you can apply asynchronously. So if you are in the same boat that Kelly and I are, where there's a little bit of uncertainty as to whether we'll be in the classroom or at home or wherever, or who's going to be in the classroom, um, take a look at some of those episodes about asynchronous content, because it may help you generate some stuff that you can have available um, if no matter where you are and no matter what your teaching situation looks like this year, uh, we also want to encourage everyone to stay safe, do what's right for you, take care of yourselves. Um, we want to make sure that, uh, that everyone's getting the care and the help that they need. I know it's a little bit stressful to be, at least for me to be thinking about going back to school in the middle of a big upsurge of new cases, but we've gone through this a couple times before and we'll just make the best of it, I suppose. Yep. Well, on a lighter note, though, I mean, yes, we're going to be in their Zen garden. I think I'm going to be out there like outside. Let's go outside and teach. I forgot to ask you, did you look at the Adafruit, the Python rules? Yes, those are so cool. So there's a it's a ruler, right? Yeah. Engineering ruler. And uh, what is it? It has all kinds of stuff on it. And I don't we didn't order it or did you order it? I haven't ordered it yet, but I'm going to. So it looks it looks like a regular ruler, right? Like a 12 inch long ruler with all the markings and everything, and it's made like a circuit board because it is a circuit board. It circuit, has circuit playground. Pi- yeah, it has like a circuit Python compatible board built into the ruler, so you can plug your ruler into your computer and run code on your ruler, which I think and, is really cool. And did you see the price? This it is the best part. How much is it? 
that's $12. $12. So I thought that was really cute. And on the back of it, like when you, when you look at it, this one is microcenter.com. Adafruit Industries Pi Ruler, Engineer Reference Ruler with Circuit Playground. And the back, it has, I'm sure David Amos, it has a Lambda, a Micro, a Pi, and it says DigiKey. And it's so cute. Yeah, and I think those are capacitive touch sensors too. So you I can think touch so. those and trigger other things to happen. So. I, I was afraid of- to ask at least I, I ask our boss. I've I've already got an AWS <laughs> <laughs> thing sitting on my desk looking at me, going, open me, open me. I haven't done it yet. So I was afraid to ask for another thing that I wasn't gonna open yet. So yet. The key word yet. is yet. Yet. <laughs> yet. All right. Well, anything else that I'm forgetting, Kelly? Any new announcements or anything going on at the moment? Uh, nothing right now. We go back to school Monday. So we'll, yep, we're, we're figure I'll- out our schedule and stuff of when we're gonna record. Yeah, and that, that is something I mentioned in the email this week is we definitely want to make sure that we have a regular live stream schedule so that if you want to tune in, you're able to. Um, so we're going to be uh, trying to set that up in the next couple of weeks. We also have some really exciting guests coming on. Um, I just reached out to Rusty Gregory. I hope we can get him on the on the show soon. He and I spoke back in the early days of the podcast, but he was just on an episode of Talk Python Uh, That was really cool. It was all about small automation projects. So those little Python programs that you write that save you 15 minutes here, an hour there, you never publish them, but they help you run your life a little bit more smoothly. And so he was talking about a lot of the stuff that was on um, like with his work at the school district level to be able to do some web scraping and, and CSV manipulation to be able to publish reports and all this cool stuff that he's doing for the, his school district. So I'm hoping we can get him on the show soon to talk about that. So new good uh, guests coming in the future, new teaching this year, new students. It's like refreshing <laughs> how many new things there are. And uh, we have some new new fun stuff to play with in the classroom this year that I think our students are really going to like also. Cool. Yep, I agree. All right. <laughs> All right. So as as usual, you can find us um, at Teaching Python on Twitter. Our website is teachingpython.fm. We now have 73. Four uh, episodes in the back catalog. There's something for everyone in there. Um, I did go through and reprocess episode one through a little bit of audio enhancement. So if you ever want to go back and listen to how awkward that was in the very beginning, it sounds a little bit better from an audio engineering perspective, not necessarily from the smoothness <laughs> of our delivery, but you know, you got to start somewhere. Well, um, they can just compare it to our live streams. It's probably about the same. <laughs> I don't know. We sound so stilted in that first episode because. We don't, we haven't found our voices yet. So I I love leaving it there because it shows the progression we've made over the course of our podcast. And I think you can see and hear the way that we've uh, become more comfortable with the show. Yeah. I can actually say terms. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We got to run. I got to get my kids from wakeboarding camp. All right. (laughs) Sounds good. You know, they, they got to end the summer right too. So for teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off.